0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the relationship between Russia and China, and how it relates to Ukraine and other geopolitical issues. We have with us Dr. Ian Morris, who is the Jean and Rebecca Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. Dr. Morris is also the author of a new book called Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, a 10,000-Year History. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, well, thanks for having me on. So I want to talk about Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia and China, but I think the first thing I want to ask you is, Why do Russia and China both want the map of their territories to be redrawn?
1: Well, I think people in Russia and China, both of them would say the maps have already been redrawn. But the way they were redrawn was just not very satisfactory for people in Russia and China. And um, for for Russians, of course, the obvious thing is the the famous Vladimir Putin line from 2005 about the collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. What he meant by that was that for 400 years, Russian rulers have been trying to create strategic depth to their West to give them a buffer against Europeans. Um, And that had just been stripped away in 1991 by the the redrawn. Drawing the boundaries. And I think Chinese leaders, when they talk about the map being redrawn in an unsatisfactory way, what they have in mind more is a sense that Western powers, particularly the US, have been trying to encircle China, contain China's growth, build an uh, island chain, they call it, along the Chinese coast. And to many strategists in Moscow and Beijing, these were just unacceptable, aggressive redrawings of the map by the West. And this is why they, you know, they, they present what they're doing, as that they're not being aggressive here. They're the ones trying to restore the status quo. It's the West that's being
0: aggressive. So how have these approaches worked in your judgment for each country?
1: Well, in mixed ways. I mean, like any broad approach to geostrategy, it's going to have plus sides and it's going to have minus sides as well. So in some ways, I mean, you say if you look back into Russian history, for many centuries up till really about the 16th century, the major threats to Russia always came from the east, from the Mongols and related people raiding out of the steppes. And the Russians engaged in a long-term, very aggressive process of building up strategic depth to their east, pushing across the Urals, going all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And that was very successful. That really closed down the Central Asian menace to to Moscow. But as soon as they did that, of course, now they've got to deal with the threat from the West. And you look back across 400 years, repeatedly, European forces have come into Russia and cause tremendous damage. Like in 1610, the Poles burn Moscow. In 1705, the Swedes besiege St. Petersburg. 1812, Napoleon burns Moscow again. 1917, yeah, the Germans are back. Russia collapses, almost happens again in 41, 42. So you can kind of understand them looking west and saying, the only thing that saved us... In these great moments of crisis was this strategic depth. So this is a very successful strategy. The problem now is not with the strategy, it's with the fact that the, the strategy has been undermined by Western aggression. And China, again, they spent many, many centuries, much longer than Russia, building up strategic depth around the the core of the Chinese society in the Yellow River Valley, built up this huge area, went on a a rampage doing this in the 18th century, pushing the borders way out into Central Asia, taking over Tibet. That's the point they take over Taiwan as well. Chinese people will often talk about Taiwan being an ancient part of China. It really isn't. It only goes back about 300 years. So, you know, for both countries, the idea of building up as much depth as possible. This has worked really well against some threats, less well against
0: others. So when we talk about strategic depth, we really mean territory, right? To a great extent. It, it doesn't have to mean
1: that. There's other forms of strategic depth as well. I like, say the relationship between territory and effective depth, of course, varies with the kinds of technologies and organizations that are out there. And so you can say oh, geography is destiny. But at the same time, we get to decide what that destiny means. So the nature, what the geography means is constantly changing. And so uh, some people will say, oh, well, now that we're in the age of cyber warfare, this whole concept of strategic depth has ceased to have any meaning whatsoever. I must say, I think that's a a sort of wild overstatement of the way things have changed, but certainly air power changed things dramatically. So the Russians here for a very, very long time have been worried about these Western frontiers, both in terms of having the space to delay hostile invasions like Napoleon's, but also with creating the space that gives them access to um, the world's oceans. I think for both Russia and China, this is kind of a concept that always goes alongside strategic depth. There's access to the wider world.
0: And China, of course, now has the world's largest navy.
1: Absolutely, yes. Whether whether it's the world's most effective navy, of course, is a, another question.
0: We tend to think in the United States we have the world's most effective navy, but yeah, China calls that into question now with it with its size and with some of the strategic missiles that could hit our carriers, for instance. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think you know, with almost any objective measure, yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. Navy is by far the most efficient and effective in the world, as well as being one of the biggest. But it's this sort of classic military strategy thing that you know, military interactions, it's a rock, paper, scissors game. You know, what works really well, the scissors are great against the paper, but kind of useless against the rock as I think has been widely recognised, the Chinese were very smart about how they went about their naval rebuilding. And they realised, we we may never be able to challenge the United States in a classic great fleet action in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So it'd be kind of silly to invest in a 30, 40 year programme of building a great force of aircraft carrier battle groups. And also you look at history, I mean, look what happened to Germany a hundred odd years ago when they tried to rival the British head to head in battleship construction. So the Chinese instead went for this asymmetric approach with all the surface-to-surface missiles, the submarines. Um, and I think you know, most strategists seem to think that you know, we will never again see an American fleet sail through the Taiwan Strait like Bill Clinton was able to do. That Those days are long gone because the Chinese have been clever about how they built up their naval forces.
0: We continue to sail through the Taiwan Strait, though.
1: That's why they're not trying to stop us. (laughs) It's one thing having US fleets and Allied fleets sailing through the Taiwan Strait in a time of peace. It's going to be very, very different when there are thousands upon thousands of surface to surface missiles uh, just 50 miles away on the Chinese mainland.
0: So that's something that we have to be thinking about now.
1: Yes. And I think um, American strategists have thought very deeply about this, about how how do we make a credible commitment, if we need to, to support Taiwan militarily against an invasion if we're moving into a world where we may not be able to bring aircraft carriers within flight range of of the island of Taiwan? It may be that Chinese submarines with missiles that can be used against land targets are lurking already surrounding our bases on Guam, other places so people have been thinking very hard about oh, how do we go about doing this? How, how do we offer military support to Taiwan? Should it ever be needed?
0: I want to ask you about your recent piece for Time, where you noted that Russia and China's expansionist ideologies complement each other. China has money, needs fossil fuels, and Russia has fossil fuels, but needs money. Where do you see the economic relationship between Russia and China going in the near term, medium term, and then, you know, of course, the long term as well?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting question, because you know, at first glance, Russian and Chinese leaders have so many shared interests. And in both countries, there's a sense that there's an American-dominated global order that needs to be revised. The map needs to be redrawn so Russia and China can realise their full potential. So you every reason to cooperate, to uh, at the very least to push the Americans back into the Western Hemisphere and um, give Russia and China veto power over anything that goes on in their their own backyards. But then, you know, as with so many of these relationships, you start burrowing down into it a little bit. There's a lot of places where the, the two countries disagree. And one of the obvious ones, I think, is Central Asia. This is somewhere, it's a region that's vitally important to Russia. It's part of this uh, territory that Vladimir Putin was talking about as having been lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. Very, very important for Russia to be able to rebuild that strategic depth in Central Asia to its south. Very, Very important for China, too. Chinese leaders feel constrained by the island chains. So one way to react to those, to, to basically to outflank them, is through the Belt and Road Initiative, building all this infrastructure across Central Asia to connect up with the Mediterranean, ultimately, and the Indian Ocean. So both Oscar and Beijing, both of them are looking at Central Asia Each of them, though, has slightly different things in mind. I think an ideal outcome in Russia would be reducing the Central Asian states, not necessarily to socialist republics like they used to be in the USSR, but at least to pliant, obedient governments. I mean, the kind of way Kazakhstan seems to have been going just recently. Whereas that's not what the Chinese want at all. The Chinese want primarily. You see, highways to the wider world, running through Central Asia. And a Central Asia that is more or less part of the Russian near-abroad. This is not super appealing to people in Beijing. Which is not to say that that's enough to derail Sino-Russian buddying up. But it's an area of potential conflict. Well, I was in Kazakhstan a few years ago for a conference in Astana. And one of the things I kept hearing not only from Kazakh officials, but also from other Central Asian officials, was how lame they thought American diplomacy had been in Central Asia. Chinese diplomats are there all the time, Indians are there all the time, Europeans are there all the time, but they hardly ever see Americans, and they don't think the Americans are trying very hard to bring much to the table. And so it just seems, I think, to a lot of strategists, there's huge potential here, to to put it cynically, to kind of create trouble in the backyard for both China and Russia, to drive wedges into the issues that divide the two countries.
0: So what else can the United States and the West do to go about spurring more division between China and Russia? I think we're already doing that to an extent Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis Ukraine. But what do you think about that concept?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's multiple areas around the world where Russian and Chinese interests don't align all that well. But Ukraine has the potential to be either the great force that pushes them together or potentially a gigantic wedge to drive them apart. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why I'm sure American diplomats are really scratching their heads at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what might this war look like, what might the outcome of a peace at the end of the war look like in Ukraine. And one faction is saying, well, Russia needs to be handed a serious defeat here. And Putin needs to have this potential to make war removed and a strong lesson sent to everybody. This, this just does not pay. Because the potential downside of that is it pushes Russia very much into China's arms. Russia's excluded from global markets. Its military has been humiliated. Where better to go than toward Beijing? So there's another group saying, "Well, that's like the last thing we want to see is a humiliating Russian defeat. We need to provide the Russians with with kind of a way out here." And I uh, believe Henry Kissinger was saying something very similar to this in Davos just a few days ago. We need to provide them with some kind of face-saving way out, which doesn't necessarily have to be a territorial concession, but something that can make the Russians see that there are things to be gained from not just running to China. That you know any kind of deterrence containment strategy, you've always got to have two sides to it. One is raising the costs of aggression so high that no rational person is going to pursue violence to change the status quo. But the other side of it is raising the benefits from observing the status quo. And completely humiliating Russia, that does not raise the benefits from Russia deciding then to play along and make nice with the West. So I think it's a super delicate issue here. I think it's going to call for statesmanship of the highest order.
0: You know, Dr. Kissinger, who, of course, is a CSIS trustee and instrumental in everything we do. And from the very beginning, our very beginning 60 years ago, he got a lot of attention at Davos for what he said. Someone who's gotten less attention, but I think also who has a very good point is former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, who says that he thinks the Russians are going to pause They're going to have a strategic pause, they're going to take a breather, they've got territory, they're going to hold that territory, and they're going to back up, they're going to regroup, re-equip, rearm everything, and maybe take a bit of a breather and then go back at it in a couple years. What do you think of that notion? I think we we are all
1: tending to assume that we are now in the end game and we can see where the Ukrainian conflict is going to go. And yeah, and I I think Secretary Gates is quite right. We don't know. We don't know for sure where this is going. And you look at the last time the Russians got themselves into a mess like they're currently in Ukraine. Uh, I would say it's probably 1939 when Stalin decides to invade Finland. And it's a catastrophe. I mean, it's much worse than what's happening to Putin in Ukraine now. And so what do they do? They 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 take a pause. They, they slow down. They raise enormous numbers of men and they go back at it again in 1940. And they grind down the Finns and basically end up getting everything that they'd originally demanded. And obviously, you know, 1939 and 2022 are two very, very, very different situations. But I think the Russians do still have a lot of choices on the table. Putin has been going out of his way to tell everyone at home, this is not a war. We're not doing anything excessive. We're not having a general call up. He has a lot of cards that could still be played. What do you think victory
0: looks like for Vladimir Putin?
1: Well, I think at this point, I would, obviously, who knows what's going through his head, but I mean, at this point, I would guess if it were me in the Kremlin, I would probably be happy to get out of this with anything that was not a humiliating defeat. But, of course, um, I'm not somebody like Vladimir Putin. I think the chances of me becoming dictator of Russia are pretty slim. Um, and he <laughs> one, might- could, one
0: could only hope. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I think I would actually make an even worse dictator than him. Um, but no, I think, I suspect he is not looking at just avoiding defeat. He's going to be looking for something much more substantial coming out of this. And in a way, of course, you can hardly blame him. Whatever you might think of the way he's gone about this, any Russian leader... Looking westward into Europe, cognizant of the last 400 years of Russian history, there's no way you can look at the possibility of Ukraine moving westward, maybe even becoming part of NATO. You just cannot look at that with equanimity. This is a life and death threat to Russia, as perceived by, I think, just about any Russian leader. I think Putin, in a lot of ways, is an anomaly. But we're kidding ourselves if we think, after Putin's gone, we're going to get somebody who says, oh, yeah, fine, Ukraine, join NATO, join the EU, that's all going to be fine. They're not. I think the ideal outcome for the West and for Ukrainians is a Russian leader who says, "Okay, Ukraine remains near the top of my strategic to-do list, but I need to approach it more like the West approaches these problems, rely more on the soft power. It's because Russia does have potent soft power. They have the whole sort of one Russia Slavic ideology and Orthodox religion. They have a lot of cards they could play. But overwhelmingly, people perceive Russia so negatively, especially after this, it's going to be very difficult for them to turn around and try to woo Ukraine and make a sort of peaceful relationship with their near neighbors.
0: Do you think the United States and the West are doing enough right now to help the Ukrainians?
1: I think probably, yes. I, I think it's, a, again, a real tightrope you've got to walk here. And I think Joe Biden was absolutely right. Dismiss out of hand any talk of no-fly zones and that that kind of thing. Um, Because the, the absolute worst case outcome for everybody is that this starts to escalate toward nuclear war. So that has to be avoided at all costs. But on the other hand, of course, reacting in the kind of way that the West reacted in 2014, that probably would have led to a fairly rapid collapse of Ukraine. So I think it's been a matter of judging how far can we go in terms of supplying military equipment and clamping down on the Russian economy without provoking an escalation. And so, again, it's a very awkward thing. You want to defeat and at least a little bit humiliate Vladimir Putin, but you don't want to humiliate him to the point that he starts to think that escalating this conflict is the least bad of his possible strategies.
0: Yeah, that he has to prove something.
1: Yeah. And, of course, in his position, if he doesn't prove something, there's a pretty good chance he gets replaced in a very unpleasant way.
0: One country we haven't talked about yet in the middle of all this is India. India plays an important role both for China and Russia and certainly for the United States as well. How does India figure into this equation in your judgment?
1: Yeah, I think India is another place where Russian and Chinese interests clearly diverge quite sharply. That India has been not exactly an ally of Russia, but sort of Russia leaning for a very long time. And even now there's sort of some unclarity sometimes about where India is going. And it's a big purchase of Russian weapons, of course, as well. And China and India, you know, for obvious historical geographical reasons, have all kinds of conflicts of interest about their border zone. Both of them are interested in attracting allies in Central Asia, Southeast Asia. And so just a lot of conflicts of interest there. And you know, fairly recently, Russia was supplying excellent um, air defence systems to both China and India. And then when we had the recent actual fighting between Indian and Chinese troops up in the Himalayas, the Russians stopped supplying China. They, they made the choice of which of these partners, at least, In terms of military supplies, which of these partners matters more to us? Having Russia cut off its supplies of the S 400 system, it's not the end of the world for China, but it sends a certain signal of where Russian priorities might lie.
0: Dr. Ian Morris, thank you so much for your time today and for these valuable insights. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard,